The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Some scams I think are really obvious. I think we all get what Bernie Madoff was up to. It was a Ponzi scheme. No matter what we think about the psychology of feeling suckered. On the margins, though, it can often be easier to see the hustle from a person who's asking for bus fare, for example, than it is to see the hustle from the CEO of an investment bank. What's up, everyone? It's Wednesday here at the Next Big Idea Daily, and I'm your host, Michael Kavnet. Now, how would you like to be called a fool or a sucker? I bet you wouldn't like it, would you? That feeling of being tricked, of having someone put one over on us, it's unpleasant to say the least. And according to author Tess Wilkinson Ryan, we'll do almost anything to avoid it. In her new book, Foolproof, How Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Ourselves and the Social Order and What We Can Do About It, Tess argues that our efforts to avoid being humiliated or exploited can explain much of our individual and collective behavior. And being aware of this, we can make better decisions. Tess teaches law at the University of Pennsylvania, and she joins us now to share a few of her big ideas. There are possibilities of being made a fool like all over the place. If I was inclined to be especially suspicious, I might see like a new grocery store in my neighborhood overcharging me. My colleagues trying to shunt their committee work onto me, even my kids exaggerating their needs. Day to day, there are little fool's games everywhere we look, and it's really natural to overreact to the risk of being suckered. One of the ways I want to think about that overreaction is by thinking about a study from a couple of psychologists at Stanford. Here's the gist. Imagine you've been given $100 and an opportunity to invest in a startup. This new startup has been assessed by experts, and this is what they tell you about the odds of success. They say, look, there's an 80% chance that this goes nowhere, but doesn't totally tank, and you just get your money back. You break even. There's a 15% chance you're going to double your money, and there's a 5% chance you're going to lose everything. The participants in this study were randomized into two possible groups or conditions. Both conditions heard the basic setup, but then they each got a piece of extra context about that downside risk, that 5% risk of loss. In one group, They heard that the 5% risk of losing everything was because the founders of the company might have overestimated market demand for their product. In the other group, they heard that the 5% risk of losing everything was because the founders might be total frauds. So the question for the participants was, how much of your $100 would you invest if you had the opportunity? Now, the numbers were the same across conditions, but the nature of the downside risk turned out to be a big deal. The same people who might be willing to invest $60 in the normal market risk situation, were only willing to invest $37 if the risk was a risk of fraud. They were much more risk averse if the 5% risk was the risk of fraud. There might be reasonable explanations for this, I guess. Like maybe I'm more embarrassed to be associated with the scam than I am to be associated with just a regular failed company. But most of the time, it seems to me that if I'm investing money in something, it's because I want to make more money. And financially, those two risks are equivalent. So my takeaway is that the study suggests people are underinvesting in that second company because of the quite small risk that they would be a sucker. So insight number one is don't let that fear of being a sucker swamp the rest of your personal cost-benefit analysis. Big scams are a big deal, but the little ones actually get more attention. 
Some scams, I think, are really obvious. I think we all get what Bernie Madoff was up to. It was a Ponzi scheme. No matter what we think about the psychology of feeling suckered. On the margins, though, it can often be easier to see the hustle from a person who's asking for bus fare, for example, than it is to see the hustle from the CEO of an investment bank. There's a reason that the archetypal grifters are more sort of marginal characters in myths and novels. Even though the stakes are higher when there's more money and power involved, people are more attuned to hustles from people on the margins. For a number of reasons, it's just easier and more intuitive to accuse people with less power of taking advantage, which is kind of perverse. And so I'll give you an example. When my sister was a medical resident, so she was in training to be a doctor, she and her peers worked incredibly hard, as all residents do. I was in total awe, and I was also kind of appalled at how relentless it was. Um, You know, very impressed that they were all doing it, and with such basically good cheer. Her program was in obstetrics and gynecology, and it was mostly women, mostly women residents which means that there were, say, six or eight women in their 20s and 30s in this resident group, some of whom were also having children while they were at this stage in their training. And when they did have kids, they would take their, like, very measly six weeks of leave. um, And when they did that, their co-residents would have to absorb the extra work. So then you have the situation where these new doctors are also new moms and they come back to work and like lots of new moms, they deal with all the normal stuff that happens to parents of babies. Like you get daycare viruses or your babysitter calls out one day or you have to take breaks to pump, that kind of thing. This team of residents, the youngest people on the sort of hierarchy of physicians at the hospital, had to absorb the work of whoever was missing time. And you can probably imagine how easy it is for resentment to start bubbling up. It's so easy to craft a narrative about how a new parent is like actually shirking or they're getting special treatment or they're playing the baby card. And for some reason, those complaints are more intuitive. They generate more instinctive indignation than the complaint that, hey, the hospital administrators could do a better job supporting these hardworking residents. I think that latter critique is the more important one. It goes to the sort of structural problems, but it's so much easier to reframe exploitative choices from institutions as choices that are made that are good for business. People seem to be naturally attuned to minor scams from those with less social capital to spend, but with people or institutional bodies with power do stuff that's arguably exploitative, so either underpaying workers or overworking staff, it's much more likely to be described in positive terms as like savvy or cost-effective. So this last insight is about how we are better able to avoid the pitfalls of sucker phobias by keeping our eyes on the prize, our eyes on the goals. My poor sister keeps getting used for my examples, but I'm going to go back to her um, because she told me the story and it was such a perfect example. So she lives in Vermont um, and now she is a regular doctor with regular doctor life. um, And she was out biking with her friends on the weekend. And she's a great athlete, but she has a full-time job. And some of her friends are really serious bikers, not just out there on weekends having fun. So she was on a relatively difficult ride. It was just on the border for her. Like she was sort of struggling to keep up. And she and all her friends coasted into a little town with a general store. And she was so relieved because she was so hot and thirsty and genuinely getting nervous that she needed to rehydrate like ASAP. So they go into the store and she looks around and she realizes it's not a regular general store. It's a tourist trap. Or at least it's all sort of like Vermont cute, you know, aimed at New Yorkers, not Vermonters. And so she goes to get her Gatorade and she sees it's like double or triple the usual price. And she had this moment of thinking, I am not going to pay tourist prices for a Gatorade. What a racket. But then she stopped and took stock. And she thought, 
her priorities were all askew. She thought to herself, I have a goal right now, and it's to be able to ride home with my friends and enjoy my weekend. I am so thirsty, I'm feeling lightheaded. A Gatorade would be worth literally $100 to me right now. Even if that did make me a sucker in some way, what do I care if this store gets the win this time? What I need is hydration. (laughs) I know the example can feel a little trivial, but the principle works in deeper ways. What is the goal here? That's the guiding light. Imagine a student comes to me and asks for an extension because she's been sick. I can easily get distracted by whether or not the story has been verified or she's just trying to get more time because she's behind on her work. I could ask for doctor's notes or something. But what I hope I do is to keep my eye on my real goal as a professor, which in this case is modeling professional compassion, grace, right? Focusing on the goal of this interaction, letting the student, another human, know she has support in this institution, connecting with another person who's asked for help. So that's my last thing. What are your values? What are your goals? The answer to those questions tells you where to put your psychological energy. Thank you, Tess. I'm going to remember that idea. Your values and goals tell you where to put your psychological energy. Sounds like a good guideline. Come on back tomorrow. We're going to talk about your data, all those stray bits of information about you that companies have been buying and selling without your permission. We'll hear some big ideas from the book, We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age by Wendy Wong. Remember, you can find all these insights on our next Big Idea app, and you can sign up for my newsletter to get a weekly summary of the latest and greatest in nonfiction. Just use the link in the episode notes or search for The Next Big Idea on LinkedIn. I'm Michael Kavnat. Thanks for listening.